The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, today we are going to discuss the backyard brawl results and break down WVU's matchup against the Kansas Jayhawks. To help us do that is our buddy, Brad Smith. Brad, welcome back and thanks for joining us. What's up, guys? I'm excited to be here. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And, um, you know, just a a little teaser for you guys. We're going to be talking about Neil Brown's fourth down decision and i got a feeling me and brad don't see eye to eye on that so stick around to hear our opinions on that um, i have a feeling you're right tyler i'm, I'm pretty positive you're right <laughs> so let's get right into it um pitt defeats west virginia 38 to 31 in the 105th edition of the backyard brawl um it's never easy to lose to a hated foe but i gotta say i i saw a lot of things that were encouraging and I think a lot of WVU fans agree with that. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it turned into the same storyline for WVU. They played well, but they found a way to lose that game. So um, let's get into it, gentlemen. We're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly with that. And let's start with um, a super positive note, C.J. Donaldson. Brad, what did you think about the true freshman's performance? Yeah, I mean, I thought he had some really great runs. Um to be honest, though, some of the holes that he had on his runs, it seemed like I could have gotten, you know, 44 yards on that 44 yard run. Um, but, you know, I, you know, he ran over a couple of people, a couple of runs and um, he looks like he's the real deal. And um, I hope to I hope we see a lot more of him in the coming days. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by the way that he um, broke out uh, just because, I mean, the coaches talked a lot about him during the. before the season started and it's hard to kind of tell whenever they're talking about things like that if you know they're just hyping someone up because he's going to play five downs a game or if it's someone who's actually a a legit threat and being someone who came in as a tight end I thought when they said running back I was thinking H back not someone who's actually going to get handed the ball and run it Um, so I I was really surprised with how effective he was Um, you know even though the holes were big he he found a way to get there get through the hole and his power was really a difference maker, especially against a, a pit front that's really good. Um, you know, in kind of comparison to the other backs, I thought he looked the best. I don't think, you know, he's a, a three-down back. I don't think he's a guy who should get all this, the carries, but I definitely think it's worth discussing if Tony Mathis should be the primary guy. Yeah, I mean, Donaldson, he was in my things last week when we we picked three things we're most excited to see in week one because the coaching staff just kept mentioning him. So I had a feeling they were at least going to give him a shot. And, um, you know, every time he touched the ball, it was it was magical. So I, I felt like that was a big reason why he even got as many touches as he did. Um, but, I mean, he just checks all the boxes. He had good pass blocking. Every time he ran the ball, it seemed like he made a huge play. And there was even times where um, he would just let his blockers set up the gap. And so I think that showed a lot of intelligence as a runner for someone who was a tight end prior to this. Um, But you do bring up a good point. A lot of people on social media are questioning whether he should get uh, a majority of the touches when it comes to the running game. So, Brad, what do you think about that? No, I'd stick with Mathis uh, for another, you know, for another game, see how it goes. I think he's earned that right. Um, I don't know, man. What do you think? You think he could have gotten six inches on that fourth and one, though? <laughs> well, <laughs> possibly. There, there's a good possibly. chance. Uh, okay. we'll, we'll dive into that later in our last <laughs> segment. But um, I'm shocked. We're, we're all in agreement. I thought you guys would lean towards um, CJ being the number one back against Kansas. But I'm with you. I'm okay with Tony Mathis getting – you know, at least half of the carries, if not more, because um, although I do want to see C.J. Donaldson get an increase in touches against Kansas, um, it's not like Mathis played terrible. He still had four and a half yards per carry, pretty much. He had a 23-yarder, um, and and so it wasn't like he played bad. I feel like some of the fan base is overreacting a little too much 
we don't want to put too much on a true freshman's shoulders. Um, but I definitely want to see an increase in touches. What do you think, Brandon? Yeah, I, I agree. I want to see an increase in touches and, you know, to, to kind of walk back on Tony Mathis real quick, you know, I think he played better in the second half. Um, but you know, I would like it kind of to, to see it be a three headed monster. Cause I do think Justin Johnson looked good out there, even though he w- didn't have the numbers. I think the way he ran his quickness, his ability to find the hole was really kind of what made me kind of question how much of a role Tony Mathis should have. I'm not saying bench Tony Mathis, but I'm saying, you know, split it three ways because I think they all add something different. And I definitely think Tony's kind of one cut straight line through run through guys works in some ways, but against teams like Pitt where they have such a good defensive line, you know, having patience, having that additional agility that Johnson brings that Donaldson seemed to bring uh, along with his power is something that really complements each other. So, you know, I, I would like to see instead of Tony Mathis being the, the guy who's getting 50% of the steps, maybe it's 33% across the three. Yeah, I agree. I, I was looking at the PFF grades for this last game and Donaldson had the highest grade of anyone on offense with an 81.9. Um, Justin Johnson had a 62.7 and Tony Mathis was 62.3. So they all had great grades uh, for the, or not great, but good uh, for that first game. And I, I like too that um, Donaldson was good in pass pro because that was the one thing that it looked like in the game that Mathis was struggling with. I know during that last drive, Mathis was in in pass pro and he's the one who missed the assignment that um, got uh, Daniel sacked for what was it, a 10 yard loss and kind of put us behind the eight ball going into a, was a second and long. Um, when we really needed a first down. So, and that's fine as a running back, you don't necessarily need to be a pass protector, but you know, I think that kind of emphasizes the need to have three guys in there kind of in there for different situations, different roles and kind of lean heavier on someone who is better for the situation that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you guys. 100%. Um, Let us know what you guys think in uh, the comments if you're if you're listening to this. But let's move on to another big bright spot. We finally have a legit quarterback, JT Daniels. I mean, he was everything hyped up to be in the offseason. And you don't see that too often Um, through a catchable ball. Doesn't hang on to it very long. I saw somewhere that he was pressured over 40 percent of the time in his dropbacks. And, um, you know, he still had good stats, still scored 31 points against a tough pit defense, which, I mean, how many times did we crack 30 last year? So JT Daniels is just everything we hoped he would be. What do you think, Brad? Yeah. Can you imagine Jared Deggy at the end of that game? That would have been a disaster. Um, I, I watched the game again and I could only find one or two like bad passes that he threw and, um, those weren't even really terrible passes. The one where he threw it up, where he was getting pressured and he threw it up and Bryce Ford Wheaton made that miraculous catch. That was probably his worst pass of the game. But um, overall, I I just thought he was spectacular. Yeah. I mean, I I think he was the best quarterback in the game. I know the numbers don't show it, but when you look at the way they, they played JT Daniels made the offense better. You know, we, we, you talked about the pressure rate. I mean, and Daniels made sure that up until that last drive, he only got sacked once. They got two more on that final drive, but that was because how quick he was, how the, his ability to navigate the pocket, he was stepping up. His pocket presence was incredible. Um, his intelligence was great. And then you kind of saw what happened with Slovis on the drive before their drive that they had to go to tie the game where you got pressure on him and he was running all over the field. He didn't know what to do. He was making mistakes. And even though the numbers don't show that Slovis was inferior than to Daniels, I honestly think that JT Daniels was the better quarterback in that game. Yeah. That's the other thing too. It's not like Daniels is known for um, his legs, but anytime he was able to get out of the pocket, he still threw a beautiful pass. He had a good one to the tight end. He had, I think another good one to either Prather or Ford Wheaton. And so that's fantastic to see. It's not like we need him breaking off for a 20 yard run, but if he's able to get out of the pocket and still throw a pretty pass, then, I mean, that's exactly what we were missing last year. And I'm going to go, Here's my hot take. I think he might be the most accurate passer for WVU in the 21st century. Ooh. Um, you could definitely make that argument for sure. I mean, Will Greer's up there, but he was also known for um, throwing his fair share of interceptions. And even though Geno Smith, you know, is probably the most prolific passer we've had in the 
21st century. Um, he was known to have one get away from him here and there. Obviously, Daniel's only played one game for us, but uh, he's in the conversation without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, the uh, way that he throws the ball to where only that guy can get it is unbelievably impressive to me. I don't know, guys. I'm going Deggy. Hot <laughs> <laughs> take city. There you go. <laughs> no, but what what was it? What would how many points would we have scored at Pitt uh, with Deggy this year? What do you guys think? Honestly, I would have. I, I don't think we would have cracked twenty, and that's not me just ragging on Deggy. But I mean, that's only two less touchdowns, and um, you know, with we obviously wouldn't have scored in the thirties. That's for damn sure. I yeah. just can't imagine him under that pressure. I think he would have just absolutely crumbled. I agree. Yeah, I mean, can't argue that. <laughs> <laughs> Not to pile on. So, uh, hey, he was one for one this weekend. Did you see that? I did. 11 yards. That's right. 100%, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk about Bryce Ford Wheaton a lot. Um, towards the end in one of our later segments, but I just want to give him a tip of the cap. He should definitely be in the pros for that game. Like I said, I don't want to dive too much into it because we'll talk about him a lot later, but um, I just feel horrible for him that he had easily the best game of his career and he'll only be remembered for that one play. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I I have a whole spiel I'm going to go on towards the end, so stay tuned, guys. It's going to be fun. I'm with you. So um, another positive, though, our front seven. My God, they played well. Um, I I liked how the D-line looked. Stills, Martin, Jefferson, they all looked like they're going to be a force this year, not only in run stopping, but, I mean, they were getting in there pressuring and getting sacks. Um, I, I just can't say enough about how the front seven played. The, the linebackers missed a few tackles here and there that we'll talk about more. But, um, man, I, I got to say, our front seven looks like they're going to be able to compete against everyone on our schedule. Yeah, Stills was everywhere. Um, Jordan Jefferson looked great. Um, even Sean Martin um, I saw show up several times and make several good plays. Um, Jarrett Bartlett looked good. Um, yeah, I thought front seven looked outstanding. Yeah, and even Mike Lockhart um, had yep. some nice plays in there, too. I mean, th- this defensive line is so deep. Um you know, I know his name didn't really show up much, and I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name, but Eddie V, uh, the kid out of um, Germany, I think, he had a solid game. Um, you know, just so many bodies we can throw out there. And, you know, for, for the loss of Akeem Mesador, I think this was a big question mark of how it would shake out. But, I mean, Jordan Jefferson stepping in there, and he's getting double teamed quite a bit now. I mean, he's bullying people because of his size and athleticism, and I think it really helps – um, shore up those question marks that were left when Mesador left. Um, and then, you know, you guys already said it stills looks like he, if he can keep up playing at this level, um, could definitely be in the conversation for big 12 defensive player of the year for sure. I, I mean, I don't know if I should admit this or not, but Akeem Mesador, I didn't even think about us missing him until you just brought him up, which I mean, probably speaks volumes about how well, the other guys played because I honestly forgot that we even lost him for this game. Definitely. All right. Well, uh, if that's all you guys got for the defense, let's, uh, let's round out the pros talking about special teams. We, we like to uh, include them on everything because they don't get a lot of love, but Ollie straw, man, he played well. He averaged 41 yards on six punts. And three of those punts were deep into pit territory inside the twenties. So, um, you know, I know punter is not a sexy position to talk about, but you know what? If you have a decent punter that can give you a good field position, that can definitely add a win or two uh, throughout the season. So what do you guys think about Straw being our punter? Yeah, every time he took a snap on um, the punt, I was a little concerned because he was a freshman. It was such a big game. I was afraid he might, ball, uh, you know, fumble it or whatever. But, man, he, he really looked like a pro. He really put uh, not only, you know, handling that kind of pressure, but also – all of his kicks were fantastic. I mean, he really, he really booted it. So super, uh, super proud of him in his first game. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that we have a good punter because like you said, it can really flip games. And when you have someone who it seems like he has that natural ability to not to, to uh, number one kick within his coverage. So he's not booting it past what they can get there to. And the ball's arriving when 
his coverage is getting down there and two, pin that ball inside the five when he has the opportunity to. I mean, those are two things that we haven't had at WVU for, for years. And, you know, it doesn't maybe look like he has the biggest leg we've ever had, but that precision goes a really long way. And I think, you know, it's going to become a huge factor going forward. And it was a factor in the pick game, don't get me wrong. Um, but it's going to be a huge plus for WVU when you have a punter who can consistently pin the opposition deep. Yeah, I'm with you. And it's not like we need a big leg like we've needed these past few years because I feel like now we have an offense that can at least get you to around midfield even if they do stall out. And so to have a guy who's got a precision leg like that, I mean, that's exactly what we need with the team we have built right now. And uh, before we jump to cons, you know, kind of jumping off script for a minute, I know we didn't list it on pros, but we probably should. Um, but Grand Merrill's play calling in his offense, um, so much better. <laughs> yeah, I, I know he even got criticized a little bit on social media, but oh my God, it was it was light years better than what we've seen in recent years. Um, and, and I mean, you can just see that by the big plays that we broke off, not only in the run game, but the pass game. I mean, when's the last time you've watched the WVU offense consistently rip off big plays. We we've been a dink and dunk team for seems like three years. Yeah. I think, you know, his, his ability to push the ball downfield to mix it up. We saw a lot more screens, which is something that we really didn't do under Neil Brown. And it really suits the size and athleticism that our receivers have. I think a lot, um, you know, I like the way he used the running backs. Um, I like the zone scheme and consistently running that zone as opposed to a whole bunch of different um, running run blocking styles all in one game like he did last year. And we've talked about that a lot. Um, you know, I like how he simplified the game. He figured out ways to get the ball to the best guys on the team and he made it simple and effective. And that's all we needed. And it's great to finally see that we're putting points on the board again um, at WVU. Yeah. I love the shots he took downfield uh, throughout the game. Um, you know, not to keep going back to that fourth and inches, um, punt but I do wonder um if he you know if that's what he wanted to do or if that was a you know a Neil Brown overroll if I had I would, to guess that's probably a, a Neil Brown call what do you think Brandon yeah I was gonna say the same thing I mean that's the head coaches you know he, he comes down and lays down the law and says this is what we're doing so I guarantee yeah. I think Graham Harrell would have went for it just because of you know the background he has this offenses he's played in um he just wants to go 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 but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I doubt there's too many offensive coordinators who are waving on the punt team at that point. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, unfortunately, we got to talk about the cons because, you know, obviously some things did go wrong that game. Uh, the first thing we'll talk about is penalties, uh, especially from our O-line. That needs cleaned up. This seems to be a reoccurring issue with Neil Brown teams. Fall starts um, losing a game that we should have won because self-inflicted errors. I know it seemed to improve as the game went on and maybe it was nerves because that was such a big game. But, um, you know, our first two drives, we made it into pit territory and we came away with zero points both times because of bad snaps or false starts. And, you know, that could have been the difference between winning and losing. What do you think, Brad? Yeah, we have a, a really experienced offensive line. It doesn't make sense to me why we're still having so many issues. Um, you know, Matt Moore, to me, is someone I, I'm shocked he still has the, a job um, because he's really – we've the offensive line has just underperformed since he's been there, and there's really no excuses for, for them to be underperforming this year as well. You know, they blocked okay, but the penalties were just – I mean, it's just devastating. Definitely. I mean – but the thing that concerned me the most was whenever it was crunch time, when the game was on the line, was when we committed the most penalties. We had four penalties after we took the lead, which is about a third of all the penalties that we've had all game. And that was only in the last, like, eight minutes of the fourth quarter. So, you know, that should be, you know, mathematically, it should be about an eighth of the penalties you get from that point on. We had a third. Um, and nearly half of all of our penalty yards were from that point forward as well. So... Um, not a good time to be doing it. And I understand that there was some inexperience there with Jaquay Hubbard having to step in for, for white after he got hurt. Um, but still, I mean, you got to keep your head 
And I, I feel like there was a lot of late changes to the offensive line. And I think that's what contributed to some of the confusion. I know it seemed like late Jordan white got moved to starting right guard. They bumped out Doug Nestor to right tackle. And then, you know, it seemed like that was the group that was working for the last week or so, according to practice. And then, you know, you have Jordan white get hurt and you have Jaquay Hubbard stepping in at right tackle. So I'm, I'm kind of curious as to how many reps those two combinations were getting over the summer. Um, and how that chemistry works, how that chemistry works with the snap counts, um, how much work they got with crowd noise, all that other stuff. Um, but it has to be fixed and the head, the coaches need to get in there and kind of figure out how to stop those things from happening. Yeah. And yeah. I love, I love Zach Frazier, but you know, I'm starting to worry a little bit about uh, some nerve issues. You know, he had, um, two bad snaps at the beginning of the game. Um, there were a couple of times last year, most notably the one um, at Oklahoma with that bad snap that, you know, that's a big pressure situation. And he had that terrible snap. So I know he's a great center, but I am starting to worry a little bit about that issue. And on that point, too, you know, Jordan White can play center. So I'm wondering if, you know, if Zach Frazier isn't com- comfortable playing center, which, you know, I'm fine with him there if he can kind of become more consistent with those snaps. But you know, worst case scenario, if Jordan White can do that more consistently, then just swap him. I mean, I think that could work out, assuming Jordan White can come back healthy. But, um, you know, it feels like we have the bodies there so that if Zach Frazier is just better as a guard, you know, we should just move him there. I, I don't see the need of playing him at center if he's not capable of handling that job. I'm not saying that he's not, but snapping is, you know, priority 1A with an exclamation point at the end for a center. And yep. that needs to be like clockwork. Yeah, two high snaps in the, I think it was first two drives. So um, I will say one of those, it looked like it hit JT right in the hand. So I might put one of those on JT, but the other one was 100% Zach Frazier's fault. And uh, again, we don't want to pile on. Zach's been amazing uh, his entire career at WVU. It's just every now and then he has these blunders that that seem to cost us in big games. And yeah, I'm sure he'll be the first one to tell you. He's got to clean it up because... Cost you a win against Oklahoma, possibly a win against Pitt. Those are games that, man, you you can't be making those mistakes. And he's a tremendous blocking talent. So, you know, it kind of sucks that he does have this little minor flaw in his game. Because other than that, he's fantastic. He's one of the best offensive linemen in the Big 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and overall, the line was okay. I mean, they do need to play better. But compared to last year, they were way, way better against uh, a tough Pitt defense who we know loves to put pressure like we said over 40 percent of the time JT Daniels was pressured but um, uh, I definitely think JT made them look better than they did perform because he made a lot of tough throws under pressure whereas you know like we keep saying if someone else was playing quarterback you know we might be more critical of the offensive line's performance yeah All I right, think that's guys. sorry no, I was going to talk about the offensive line a little bit too you know with you know, I think Milam had a solid game. I definitely other think than there's the penalties. Some, <laughs> yeah, other than the penalties. But, I mean, I think pass blocking, he did good. I mean, we only allowed mm-hmm. one sack up until the end. Um, you know, and I, I think the offensive line as a whole did did pretty well. Um, like you said, much improved. Uh, it was great to see that they were all kind of working as a unit and no one was kind of get beat, beaten one-to-one. I, I kind of want to know – what happened on that last drive. Cause it just seemed to kind of, I don't know if Pitt figured something out. They saw something, but it seemed like on that final drive that we had to have the chance to tie it up. Our offensive line, the cohesion there just kind of fell apart. Um, they were blitzing and no one was picking up their guy. They were getting through almost immediately. And that completely blew up our chance to win. Um, obviously you can say what you will about the Reese Smith catch or non-catch, which we'll talk about later, but you know, you don't have those two big sacks there at the end. You don't have all that pressure um, coming from up the middle. You know, maybe we don't need that Reese Smith catch, not catch. Uh, maybe we score just naturally from moving the ball downfield. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm sure we were running deeper routes, too. I'm sure that had something to do with it. But you're right. If you rewatch that game, I mean, it was almost immediately. JT had no chance to even throw it up. Um, one last thing we want to talk about guys is our secondary and tackling. 
Um, secondary was a bit of concern to me. I will give them somewhat of a pass. They were missing two of their key guys. Uh, Woods left the game very early. I believe um, Neil mentioned it was maybe around the end of the first quarter. So, I mean, that's most of the game. You're missing your best guy back there. McCormick, of course, you know, uh, famously got ejected in the fourth quarter towards the end there. So um, maybe they get a pass for that. But man, when we needed secondary to step up, it seemed like Pitt had guys wide open. And also contributing to all that was the linebackers in the secondary just had very poor tackling. Um, If we could have maybe stopped some of those eight yard runs with good tackling, maybe the play action isn't working as well to throw off our secondary. So I think those two things definitely are concerns for our defense. What do you guys think? Yeah, for the secondary, you know, I'm really looking. Yeah, I feel like both jobs are wide open. If Charles Woods doesn't come back, if he does come back, that one spot's locked up. But I think every secondary job's up for grabs. And we had a really good recruiting class, especially with young, really highly rated DBs. And those guys need to kind of look at what happened in the game and say, you know, I can win that spot. That spot's mine because Ajayi, McCormick, um, Floyd, everyone, Burks, I mean, everyone just kind of had their moments where they looked bad. I mean, just flat out bad. And I understand those guys are playing because they're experienced. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know what you're going to get out of them, but I, I, I don't think that you'll see more than half of those guys starting by the end of the season. Uh, I think that these freshmen are coming and take their jobs here soon and they need to, I mean, it's nothing against those guys. I'm sure they will be great depth pieces, but as starters, um, you just got to be better. Yeah. I thought the secondary actually looked better than I expected them to look this game. um, Particularly with Charles Woods uh, getting injured. Um, You know, they have a lot of inexperience there um, at this level. Um, I really like Mumu Ben Wahad, um, the the freshman cornerback, and I think he might be one of those players that Brandon's talking about that could really step in and and maybe take one of those those starting roles. Yeah, and I, the one guy who really disappointed me was Aubrey Burks because you know all spring, all summer, even in the spring game, he looked like a he looked like the guy. He looked like someone that you know he steps onto the field and he's ready to go you have no worries about him and he may end up developing into a superstar and it seemed like he got kind of caught on a lot of plays taking bad angles um you know not kind of coming down on certain routes um you know i just expected a little bit more from him because of how much i expected from him and maybe that wasn't right because he is young and he is inexperienced but he was the guy i was probably the most disappointed about um in terms of linebackers you know i think Cope Joe was, he had his ups and downs in coverage, but I thought Lance Dixon was tremendous. Um, I know he allowed a few catches, but man, he can stick to guys at that linebacker position. I know he was covering tight end slot receivers and he was always right there by the ball, contesting the catch. Wasn't always breaking it up, but I mean, his coverage skills are unreal at the linebacker position. So he was one of the bright spots I really liked. Yeah. And and as a whole, I think our linebackers are going to have a better year overall. They just showed a lot of, like you said, bright spots. Of course, there was things to criticize, but I think as a whole, just our size at linebacker now, our speed, I I think everything's an upgrade from last year. I agree. hundred percent. You know, the tackling I think is a different story. I know you touched on that, but I mean, it just seemed like outside of, you know, a couple guys on the defensive line, there was missed tackles all over the the field. Um, Really no fundamentals. People were diving at people's legs. People were just grabbing at arms, grabbing at jerseys, Um, no fundamentals. And, you know, on that last touchdown catch, there was four missed tackles. Um, The one that Pitt scored to tie the game up. Um, You can't have four guys miss a tackle. (laughs) That's how big plays happen. And, you know, someone needs to kind of be the guy that you can rely on to make tackles every time. I know, you know, the guy I think of all the time is Nick Kwiatkowski, who seemed to never miss a tackle. Um, It doesn't have to be a linebacker, but we need someone on that defense who is going to make the tackle every time that, you know, they need, need to be made. It could be a safety. It could be a linebacker. It could be whoever. Um, We just need someone consistent out there to clean up everyone else's mess. Yeah. Yeah. And and they got a good opportunity to improve on that this Saturday because we'll, we'll talk about the Kansas game here in a little bit, but that's a team that likes to run the ball a lot. And, you know, if you, if you're going to miss a lot of tackles, that's a team who's going to control the ball and possibly make you pay for it. 
All right, guys. So uh, we got a new segment here. It is called Mountaineer Nation's Most Wanted. Uh, Brandon, you want to tell us what this is all about? Sure. So, uh, you know, imagine you're in the Wild West. Um, You are Mountaineer Nation and you're is a wanted poster up at your local saloon. Um, So this weekly segment is going to be the faces that show up on those wanted posters that Mountaineer Nation once the heads of there's a reward sign, maybe it's $100,000, $40,000, whatever's a lot of money to y'all. These are the people that we're going to talk about during this segment segment. And the first on our list is uh, Bryce Ford Wooten, who infamously had that tip drop, whatever you want to call it on that stop route on the, um, that led to the pick six. Um, obviously a huge turning point in the game. Um, and unfortunately, in my opinion, He's going to get a lot of flack for that. Um, you know, we, we talked about how tremendous his performance was this past week. And I think, you know, people make mistakes and I don't think you can really hold that against him. So what do you guys think about Bryce Ford Wheaton drop that he had in, in contrast to the game that he had overall? Yeah. So yeah. Overall, overall, outstanding game. yeah, overall outstanding game. Um, I don't think anybody's going to hold that against him. I, I can't imagine anyone saying that, you know, that cost the team the game. I, I really don't see that. Um, you know, it's just one of those fluke plays that, you know, it's, it wasn't something that, that cost the team the game. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, it's the play that's going to show up on all the highlights for this game. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we're going to be his lawyer here and defend him. He looked like a bona fide true number one wide receiver, which was the biggest thing I took away Um from Bryce Ford Wheaton. I mean, he looked amazing. He built, he bailed JT Daniels out a couple times. You mentioned that um, duck that he just threw up early in the game and he ran over and caught it. There was another time it seemed like the ball was just thrown up and Wheaton came down with it. So, um, I mean, the interception was definitely his fault. There's no way around that. But to me, the only reason WVU was even in the game was because of his two huge big catches on third down so, um, you know, you can't put the whole loss on him because without him, you're not even in that position to win. Yeah. And I know yeah, I've seen a lot of people on, oh, sorry, I was going to just say, you know, there, it seems like there's a lot of people on the internet who seems to harp on the drops and how, you know, people haven't been improving on their hands over the past few years. And I don't think that's right. You know, coming into the spring game, the thing I wanted to see Bryce Ford Wheaton improve the most on was this 50, 50 balls. And he did, I mean, he did it in the spring game and I was, happy about it, but still a little bit skeptical. And he just kind of proved that the work that he put in over the off season translates into the game. You know, we talked about all those contested catches, jumping up, getting the ball. He's doing the things that we all expected him to do a year or two ago. It's finally clicking and, you know, mistakes happen. I mean, who, who knows what was in his head after those, all those big hits he was taking the one, you know, two targeting calls that didn't go his way. One of them came after that, but still, you know, that first one, you know, probably wasn't, but still they were, they were going after him. They were hitting him, hitting him hard. And, you know, when you have your back turned in that situation, you don't know what's coming from behind you. So maybe you heard footsteps, but I think rightfully so in some ways, because put yourself in his shoes. If you're there trying to make a big catch and guys have been head hunting you all game, you're going to, you're going to flinch a little. Yeah. Those fade routes that JT Daniels has thrown up to him on the end, in the end zone, against smaller cornerbacks, that is an absolute weapon for West Virginia this year too. So um, really excited to see what he does for the remainder of the year. Yeah, 100%. Reminds me a lot of Greer DeSills. Um, I, I think he's going to be a huge red zone target this year, which is good to see because honestly, I mean, who was our red zone targets the past couple of years? It seemed like they just tried putting Letty Brown up the middle every play and – you know, we didn't really have a threat on the outside, but this year it seems like we do. For sure. And so on the most wanted list, I, I think Bryce Ford Wheaton, there shouldn't be any blame on him. He's acquitted himself. He's been <laughs> tremendous. Um, that drop, you know, don't give him a hard time about it. Let's just forget. Let's take down that wanted poster, son. That's Let's right. do it. <laughs> Next one. Um, this one's kind of two, com- two combined into one, but McCormick and his targeting penalty – and the momentum shift that um, came with that. And then, you know, kind of the second piece of that is trying to figure out what targeting is in 2022. So what do you guys think of the impact of that 
poor decision by McCormick to go for the head there. And then also all the targeting reviews that happened and trying to figure out if you understand what targeting actually is, because I'm still not hundred percent sure. So yeah, it, was de- it was definitely a turning point in the game, but I mean, it was a bang, bang play. I, I definitely don't think he meant to do it. I don't think he intentionally uh, led with the helmet. Um, but like I said, it, w- it I don't think it was something that he did intentionally. Yeah. I'm with you. I don't think McCormick is, you know, I don't think it was malicious or a dumb play on his part. I think it was bang, bang, but was it targeting? Yeah. 100%. I mean, you oh, can't yeah. really argue that. Um, yeah. The really only argument is, was that hit on Bryce Ford Wheaton one. And that one I could honestly see either way. Bryce put his head down really low and it was also a bang, bang play. So really, and it's not like the guy hit him with the crown of his helmet, but really it comes down to, it does intent matter? Because a lot of the time they say intent doesn't matter. If it happens, it happens. And so if that's the case, then uh, is the Bright Ford, Bryce Ford Wheaton one targeting? I don't know. I, that one's hard for me. What do you think? Yeah. But, so what kind of solidified the thought in my head after rewatching the game was, you know, that everything's a bang bang play in football. I think if you make contact with the head, that should be targeting. So that second targeting call on Bryce Ford Wheaton should have been targeting. I saw the first one as the right call, the one on Bryce Ford Wheaton. As you can kind of see, he was targeted quite often by Pitt because um, they did hit his back. There was no target to, you know, there was no hit to his neck or head area. Um, but I think even if it is shoulder pad to head, that's something that should be protected. And the one thing that solidified it to me that it should be targeting regardless of the situation is that on the pass interference call on Sam James on that final drive, the announcer said, you know, in that situation, when you're running a stopping route as a defender, you're trying to guard the streak. So your instant reaction when someone turns to go catch that ball is to grab him. That's still a penalty. They threw a flag on it rightfully that is pass interference. So even if, it's a bang bang play and you hit someone in the head with a part of your body, the shoulder pad, the helmet, regardless, it still should be a penalty because even if it is, you know, such a quick reaction, it's still against the rules. So um, that's my thought on it. That's my logic behind it. But, you know, I definitely think that targeting should have been called on that last Bryce Ford Wheaton hit to the head. Um, You know, it looked like he got knocked out for a second. He did come back in pretty quickly, but, it's it's too dangerous. You can't allow those types of hits in the game, in my opinion. Yeah, and honestly, what I think we just determined was we don't know what targeting is because <laughs> although I can't argue with what you just said, I don't think we truly understand like 100% what is targeting and what is not. And it seems like the refs don't either, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I understand like at, at some point I, I felt like it was helmet to helmet contact which makes sense, but you know, maybe it's different between the NFL and college and I'm just getting them too mixed up, but I feel like any sort of contact to the head is targeting or it was at some point in time, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so the rules are always changing. It, it's always changing and the interpretation's always changing. And, you know, I would just hate to be a defensive player because I would just be constantly worrying about, you know, <laughs> doing something like that and, and getting ejected. Yeah, for sure. And I do think that maybe there should be different levels of severity to it. Like if you hit someone in the head with your shoulder pad, you know, it's a 15 yard penalty, but you don't get ejected. If you do it a second time, you're ejected. But if you go crown to crown, then you're ejected or something like that. I think that allows for some, some of those bang, bang moments that just kind of happen, but it still helps with player safety. But targeting is a necessary thing. I think in the game, it's just, you know, I think for McCormick's sake, you just got to be more careful in that situation. Um, so, you know, may- maybe we'll kind of leave the wanted poster halfway hanging, you know, take out <laughs> one of the, the nails and let it dangle there for a little bit. Um, but, but but for targeting as a whole, I think we should have a giant wanted poster for someone who understands the rule and can explain it to all of us. <laughs> but on that McCormick play, honestly, Brandon, I, I, I think on replay, they could have looked back and said, this wasn't intentional. This was, uh, you know, it was a accidental head-to-head contact and or helmet-to-helmet contact and I, I don't think he should have been ejected from the game yeah yeah i think that's fair 
I'm 100% with you. And they kept bringing that up on the, the, um, the broadcast was that they should have, you know, intent, like should it have been 15 yards? Yeah. But should he have been thrown out? No, the problem is in college, they don't have the intent rule. It's just, if you targeted, you're done, which I don't really agree with. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. So the next one is um, probably the second most important moment of the game behind the, the Bryce for Wheaton pick six is Reese Smith's catch non-catch. So um, I'll leave it to you all to explain if you thought it should have been a catch. And since they called it a catch on the field, if they had enough evidence to overturn it on the replay. Yeah, I think as a West Virginia fan, I like convinced myself that it was a catch. Um, <laughs> but the more that I saw it, I, I, I don't think there's any chance that um, that was a catch. I don't know how you could have possibly called that a catch. Um, it was obviously moving around. And as far as the rules go, um, that is definite. It wasn't. There's just no way to call that a catch. Yeah, I'm with you. As far as the question is, was it a catch or wasn't it? No, it, it definitely wasn't. You, I think you're kind of lying to yourself if you're if you're trying to make the argument that it was. I mean, everyone saw him drag it on the ground before he scooped it up and controlled it. Um, my only issue is that once again the consistency and the refs on the previous drive called or whatever drive it was, two drives before that they called a catch for the pit tight end. And um, it wasn't the same exact play, but I definitely thought there was enough evidence to prove that that was not a catch. Now, that was on first down, but um, think about it. Pitch driving, and they're behind at that point, and that would have been second and 10, probably forcing Pitt into back-to-back passing situations, which um, WVU was pretty successful at on second and third down when Pitt was forced to throw it deep. So, um Although it might not seem like it was a huge call since it was first and 10. Um, who knows? I mean, that really might have changed how Pitt's final drive went. Yeah, and I don't think there's any, you know, I, I do have a problem with the consistency with how they're calling those things. But I do think that I would, I do think the rest did a good job. I don't think that WVU fans, I, you know, I know there's some murmurs out there that the refs were bad and that's why we lost. I think the refs did a fine job. I'm with you. I know Neil Brown mentioned in his press conference that he was kind of alluding to that, you know, he doesn't know what it catches. He doesn't know what targeting is. And he was kind of blaming the refs. I just think that was because of emotions. I, I would hope that he doesn't really think that that's the reason why they lost. I mean, WVU lost because they blew that game. It wasn't because of the refs. So I'm with you there. Yeah. He said at the, in the press conference, he didn't know what targeting was or what, what a you know a catch was or you know that's his job to know those things and hopefully he does know what those things are so yeah Yeah. I want to see coach Brown you know owning up to his own mistakes but like I said maybe the emotions of the backyard brawl got to him and maybe it was still fresh but uh you know I don't want to hear that from the head coach right yeah I'm ripping down the refs wanted poster and you know saying that wasn't a catch I, I think it was a good call I think we were all emotional at the time where you know, some people maybe without taking a second look got a little bit too emotional over things. And hopefully everyone can kind of see the reason now that the refs were good, you know, you know, for, for the situation they were in the backyard bra, they did a great job. Um, the last one, the last one at poster I have hanging up right now is Neil Brown's decision to punt on fourth down on fourth and one. Um, inside of Pitts 50. I think they were inside the Pitts 50. They were close. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they were up by a score, and instead of going for the throat, he went and tried to lean on his defense. So what are your guys' thoughts? All you, Brad. You have the yeah, floor. <laughs> yeah, you guys know what I'm thinking. I, I wanted to see Neil Brown for once, you know, put his foot on the throat of his opponent and just and just kill him. And he had the perfect opportunity there. Um, you know, I've seen some statistics say that, you know, it was, I think, a 96% chance of winning if he went for it and a 97% chance if he punted it. Um, you know, for that 1%, he had the opportunity to really put them away and, and win the game right there. And I just thought that that was a gutless call to, to punt. Um, 
you know, I, I felt like he had an opportunity to really um, put them away right there. So, so the thing I kept asking myself is, was going for it a no-brainer? And that's the only reason I can, um, you know, give Coach Brown a pass on that. Because to me, it wasn't a no-brainer. Would Dana have went for it? Yeah. You know, aggressive coaches definitely would have went for that. And that's what we loved about Dana. Because as a fan, you always want your coach to go for it in situations like that. Um, but, you know, if you look at the scenario, WVU was up seven with six minutes left. They pinned. Uh, pit deep in their own territory so after the punt it wasn't like I was throwing my hands up saying that was a bad call I feel like we're only saying that because it didn't work out obviously and um, I, I do like the fact that Neil Brown brought it up in his press conference he was honest about it he broke down the situation and what he was thinking so um, I, I'm okay with the excuse I'm, I'm not gonna crucify him for it um, if he would have went for it would he have gotten it I mean, there's a good chance. There's no guarantee. Pitt's tough, but yeah, there is a good chance he would have converted that. But here's my big thing. What if he goes for it, doesn't convert it, gives Pitt a short field, and then the fans are probably even harsher on him for doing that up seven with not a lot of time left. So uh, I always go back to the question, was it a no-brainer? I don't think it was. And because of that, I'll give him a pass. Does he need to get more you know, cutthroat and, and tough situations? Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't have to go full Holgerson, but he needs to be a little more aggressive. So I have three things. Um, number one is I could have swore for the longest time that analytically speaking, basically if you're inside your opponent's 50 on fourth and one, you should always go for it. I remember at least in the NFL, I'm talking about that quite a bit. So, you know, it kind of surprised me from Neil Brown's perspective, who, you know, claims to be so analytically thinking and, and decision-making process that it was actually better for the team to punt. Um, that didn't really make sense to me, but I don't have the numbers in front of me. So whatever. <laughs> Number two is that I, I think your decision-making should change based on the opponent that you're facing. So like if we were playing, let's say Tennessee, and we're in the same situation, I, I think it's okay to punt there, you know, in that situation because – you know, it's less of an emotional game, but, you know, for a rival, like if we were playing like Oklahoma or Pitt or Virginia Tech and we were in that situation, I want to see a little bit more gutsiness and just go in there, go for the kill. You know, I mean, it's a rival and, you know, you're not going to really kill any momentum by failing to get it because the emotions around that game still exist. Where against someone like a, a Tennessee or Kentucky or California or something like that. There's really no ties. So if you don't get that fourth and short, sure, you might lose momentum because it's someone that has no ties to your program. Um, number three, and I th this is kind of a, you know, a, a side effect of Neil Brown's decision is that after we punted, it seemed like our defense got a little bit more conservative. It seemed like we were playing more kind of not prevent, but more kind of drop more guys back. We were blitzing less. We were, putting less pressure on Slovis where the drive before that we were pressuring Slovis like crazy. We we're blitzing. We we're coming with different stunts. So if that was, if the plan was to punt and then just kind of run out, uh, run out the clock on pit by playing conservative, then I don't agree with that decision. You know, if you're going to go out there, if you're going to punt, keep doing what's working and flips more, get pressure on him. He's struggling with it. Keep going after him. So when you look at those two decisions, you know, as, as one, I think you should have won for it. That's my decision on it. In the backyard brawl, you just don't punt in that situation. I don't think any other coach in America would have punted there. Um, I, I, again, it, it was a 96% chance of winning at the time. And he converts that, which if you looked at the, at the, the pictures of how far we had to go to get the first down, it looked like it was like, not even six inches. It looked like it was like six millimeters. And to get that, you, you, I, I love that quarterback sneak play that we used to run where um, the running back would kind of push the, the quarterback forward. I mean, that's automatic almost. That's almost 100% guaranteed that we get it. And if we, we get that first down, the game's over essentially. So um, I, I thought it was an absolutely terrible call, and I, I really think that's why we lost the game. 
Yeah. And another big thing is I saw someone um, bring up the point that if Daniels went under center, if you're trying to get him to jump, you're probably more likely to get him to jump with Daniels under center faking a sneak rather than just sitting back and shotgun. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. I would like for Daniels to be under center in that situation and then just feel it out. Like he can get under center and see, well, if there's a gap, call hut. If there's not, let the clock run out. But if you're just going to go out there, sit and shotgun on fourth and one and try to get him to jump. I mean, you might as well just bring out the punt team. You're not going to get him to jump in that situation. I think what you can do is, you know, they have the box loaded and they're expecting it, you know, just throw a short little pass out to the flats, throw something short over the middle where the linebackers are blitzing at. I mean, you, you could turn a fourth and one into a touchdown because Pitt's going to be stacking that middle, trying to take away the run. So, um, you know, I, I just kind of imagine in my head, you know, if they go fourth and one, you, you fake that handoff, dump something off quick over the middle, you know, how hyped would the West Virginia fans be then? That would be the absolute best way to end the backyard brawl with a two score lead. Yeah. And the offensive line, you know, we, the coaches have talked to all, all summer about how great the offensive line is and how much better they've gotten. That's a great opportunity for, for Neil Brown to show that he, he trusts his offensive line and his offense to get six inches. And again, he just didn't do that. Yeah. So I, I think I'm going to keep the wanted poster up for that. I definitely think it's something that Neil Brown needs to atone for in future games, maybe hang 50 or 60 on Kansas. And then, uh, you know, hopefully we can pull off some upsets this year with more aggressive play calling. So with that, I am done with my most wanted list. <laughs> I love that right. segment, Brandon. I do. <laughs> that was a good idea. So um, good segue. Let's talk about the Kansas game. The Mountaineers take on the Kansas Jayhawks at six o'clock on Saturday in Morgantown. And Kansas is coming off of a 56 to 10 win over Tennessee Tech. Listen, I'm happy Kansas program is kind of on the upswing compared to recent years. It's always good to have stiff competition in the Big 12, so I'm glad they're not a doormat anymore. But, uh, you know, and also their 56 points in an opener are the most since 1912, which just shows how bad they have been for over 100 years. But, uh, you know, they steamrolled. Tennessee Tech, who I'm pretty sure was below 500 last year. So they're not even good for an FCS school. To me, that was a step above the blue and gold game in the spring. That doesn't show me a whole lot. Um, and and so what do you guys think about this Kansas game coming up? Um, for me, it, I definitely, I, I think this is a win. I mean, I don't really see too much about Kansas that worries me other than, than Jalen Daniels. I think that you know, he's really the X factor that could really, you know, throw a knot in things if he has a tremendous game. And he's a great athlete. He's a solid quarterback. Um, he's a playmaker. But the weapons around him, even though that they return a lot of players, they brought some transfers in. This was a group that offensively and defensive la- defensively last year were among the bottom of the entire FBS. Um, you know, if you give, you know, if you, you, you take a turd and you, you know, put some polish on it. It's still a turd. So um, that's my take on it. <laughs> I, I, I have, I have Kansas upsetting West Virginia this week. Um, I think, <laughs> yeah, I think if you look at their last four games, their last three games last year, um, they beat Texas at, in Austin um, in overtime. They almost beat uh, TCU on the road last year. And then um, they barely lost to uh, West Virginia at home. Um, I, I think they're an up-and-coming program. I think West Virginia is going to be um, not mentally right after that pit game. I hope they're mentally right. But if they're not, I think that Kansas can easily pull the upset here. And I mean, I, I agree that I think Kansas is kind of on the upswing compared to where they were before. But um, kind of like what Brandon said, I think everything that they're good at is kind of in our favor. Like, let's break down their offense. First and foremost, Kansas likes to run the football, and they do have talented running backs. They have Devin Neal. They have Daniel Hitchaw, um, and they like to run to set up Jalen Daniels. However, like we talked about earlier, I like WVU's front seven against their offensive line. I think they'll apply a lot of pressure, not only on the halfbacks, but I think when Daniels tries to play action and set up the pass, I think they're going to have them running around. 
Um, but as we know, J- Jalen Daniels can make plays with his feet. So I do think he'll escape a few times and hit our secondary. That's a little suspect for some long passes. Um, but however, Kansas defense is not very good. They were dominating against Tennessee Tech. But as we said, that team's not good at all. Um, I, I think they do have a talented defensive end, Lonnie Phelps, who came in from Miami, Ohio. He had three sacks last week. Um, so he might make a play or two. But overall, this Kansas defense, I think, is a good matchup for WVU on offense. I think JT Daniels and company are going to have a huge day. So um, I'm not too worried about this game. What do you think, Brandon? Yeah, I want to say that, you know, despite my turd comment, um, Lance Leipold, I think, has the program in the right direction. It's just, you know, year two is a little bit too soon for me to kind of say that they have the personnel to really match up. You know, he may make some coaching decisions that keeps the game closer than what we think, kind of like last year. But I think it's a completely different monster this year with, JT Daniels and Graham Harrell's offense, um, you know, it's shouldn't be necessarily a low scoring game, um, but, you know, I could see something where it's like, you know, 35 to 21 or something like that. I still think we win by two scores. Um, I think the offense is just we, we have too much to to be shut down. You know, I think that if they want double Bryce Ford Wheaton, that's going to open things up for other guys. And I think this is a game that I really want to see those second and third receivers really kind of step up because we didn't see too much of Sam James. We saw some, but we didn't see enough Caden Prather. And I even made a comment to you, Tyler, during the game after Caden Prather had a 21 yard catch on that screenplay. I'm like, there he is. West Virginia's number one wide receiver. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I I'm unbelievably believing in uh, Caden Prather and how good he can be. So I'm hoping this could be a tune up game to, so he can have a big game, kind of get a big two going out there with JT Daniels. Um, you know, I think their defense is okay, but I think they have too many holes. Um, I do think Jalen Daniels will have a solid game. Um, I do see Kansas continuing trying to run the ball more, um, probably a lot of zone read just so they can kind of control the clock and at least put them in a situation to maybe keep the game close. Um, but if Kansas just wants to go full shoot, shoot out, I don't think this is going to go well for Lance Leopold and, Kansas Jayhawks. Yeah, I'm with you. Brad, do you have a, a prediction for what the score will be and how it'll play out? Yeah, I'll go uh, 35-28. I'll take Kansas. Okay. I think we're in the same, all three of us, I think we're about in the same range as far as it's going to be high scoring. Um, the way I see it playing out, it's a 6 o'clock game in Morgantown. I think that helps WVU a lot. I think their fans will be filled with excitement because of the potential that they saw in the pick game. I think we're hyped for this team. Whereas, you know, the last few years, we weren't always hyped to see WVU's offense. But um, I think fans are going to be pumped. I think they're going to be loud. And um, even though we just came off a game with a lot of emotion, I feel like not only the fans, but the players are really looking to make a statement. If you know, if if you guys watched all their press conferences, um, that they were even talking about how that game was going to catapult them um, for the rest of the season. They weren't talking like they were depressed. They were talking like we let one get away, but we we know we can do a lot of good things this year. And so I think WVU is going to score over 30, maybe even in the forties. And I think they hold Kansas to somewhere in the twenties. And so I'm predicting um, easily uh, a double digit win for WVU. And I really hope so, because, you know, I think this is a game where, you know, we talked about Neil Brown's aggressiveness, you know, he can't play this game close to his chest. He can't play to keep things in control. He needs to just put his foot on the gas and go, you know, that there's no reason against Kansas to play conservative, just go out there and play. I think you have to have confidence in your players, confidence in your coordinators to just, you know, win the game for you. And I don't think Kansas will be able to keep up. My biggest fear is that even if, you know, if we would win a game, if we would win the game and we only win by say seven or three, because Neil Brown kind of wants to keep things at a slower pace and keep things in control and play things more conservative, that would be a red, big red flag for me. So I'm really hoping to see from this game that he's willing to pile it on, you know, just go out there, show the fans at home that we can score points, that you're going to be aggressive, that we're going to throw downfield, that we're going to run up the score a little bit before pulling our starters in the fourth quarter. 
Yeah, I'd love to see that Neil Brown, Brandon, but I don't know that we've ever seen him. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know that that Neil Brown even exists. I'm hoping that he, he can change. I have faith, Brad. Okay. <laughs> I feel like this is the team that could maybe sway him that way, just because they are so talented and they are capable of putting up points. Um, but you're right. We need to see it before before we give them that credit. But uh, I, uh, I'm definitely with you. I, I think we could potentially see that Saturday. I'm, I'm really hopeful. I want to see it. I want to hear. I, I want to be leaving in the third quarter, you know, if the game's <laughs> over. <laughs> All right, guys, you got anything else? I don't have anything else. No, I, I hope I'm wrong about the Kansas game. I, I want to see them turn this thing around. Um, I think, you know, the next three games are, are very winnable games. And, um, you know, I'd love to be three and one. So um, hopefully I'm wrong. I'm with you. I'm going hot take. I'm saying the next three wins are by double digits and we're going in hot against Texas. I'm not going to tell great. you what, how I think the Texas game will go, though, because I want to stay positive. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Virginia Tech looked terrible. So that's that's a real winnable game, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Free pick from Grant Wells. Yeah. Not a great way to start. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Um, be sure to check in next week and let's go Mountaineers. Let's, let's go. go.